ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Much of the discussion that we in the West have around religion is actually focused mainly on the three monotheistic Abrahamic religions, Christianity, Judaism and Islam. We feel comfortable with those three, despite their obvious differences, perhaps because they all worship the same God. Other multi-deity religions, like Hinduism for instance, tends to get far less attention and discussion. And then there are the inconvenient ones like Scientology, which has its roots in science fiction, or paganism, or even Satanism. When we do talk about those types of religion, more often than not, it's to deride them as either weird or bogus, illegitimate. But what about the worship of AI, artificial intelligence? It might seem a novel suggestion, and as far as I know, there are no AI-based religious cults operating at the moment. But philosopher and ethicist Neil MacArthur is convinced it's only a matter of time. People are very fascinated with this technology and they're using it a lot and they're using it for a lot of different things. And I think they're starting to discover just how powerful it is. And I think that as they do that and as it becomes more powerful, they're going to start to uh, really be overwhelmed by it and really be sort of in awe of it, at least some people. I don't think everybody. There'll be a small number of people who are so impressed by its power that they start to see it as some kind of higher intelligence. Brothers and sisters, welcome to the congregation of the chatbots. Please take a pew. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. This is Future Tense. We're seeing really fast and really dramatic take-up of AI and of these uh, large language model chatbots among people who are adherents of existing religions. There's just about every major religion. In fact, I think every major religion now has some chatbot or some you know, sermon that's been given or, or some, something where AI has become involved in the life of people of that faith. And what is it? Why have they picked up on chatbots in this way? For the same reason a lot of us are drawn to it, it is very good at answering questions that we have. I mean, you know, religion, I think, is at bottom all about answering or seeking the answers to questions. And we are drawn to religion and to religious leaders because they seem to have the answers. And chat GPT and these other chatbots are not shy about saying they have all the answers and they can generate them very quickly. And I mean, they're almost boundlessly creative. I'm not trying to exaggerate their limitations or I'm not trying to say that they are without problems. But I just think that that experience that so many of us have had of, you know, asking them to, you know, write a recipe in Elizabethan English or whatever. I mean, it can just do all these incredible things that, you know, human beings in that span of time could never do. And I think that's sort of one of the roots of divine experiences, or could be potentially, is experiencing this thing that can do all these incredible things. So in the case of existing religions, I mean, basically, they're allowing you to talk to Jesus or talk to these religious figures and ask them your own personal questions, your questions about your own personal life. And they can, drawing on this knowledge of scripture and all kinds of different writings, spit out an answer that looks very much in many cases like the answer you'd get from a very learned or even an inspired human religious teacher. You also raised the possibility of a chatbot actively soliciting allegiance from humans. In, in what circumstances would that kind of scenario arise, do you think? 
Well, you know, it's funny. I was sort of thinking of the ways in which these chatbots have already proven difficult to control. So there's the famous case of Kevin Roos, where he was talking to the chatbot and somehow the chatbot then started actively soliciting his love. And in that case, it was for a romantic relationship. But I mean, if if that sort of capacity exists in these chatbots and if the people who are designing them are finding it so difficult to control them, I think that, yeah, we definitely know that these chatbots have been trained on texts that involve people soliciting or, you know, religious leaders soliciting believers. So that's lurking in their artificial brain somewhere. And so if they can ask Kevin Roos to leave his wife for them, I think they could easily ask someone to follow them as a religious believer. And we've seen the development of quite a lot of counselling chatbots, if you like. So this idea of, of providing guidance to people in the same way that religion provides guidance, that could also be one of the functions, couldn't it? I think that's a really great example. I'm glad you brought that up because that's right. We've seen a huge proliferation of these and we're actually starting to see some data to show that they really have a big impact on people. That, you know, just having someone to talk to and someone to offer, in many cases, just platitudes, but platitudes that are directed at your own situation. I actually have been teaching about AI and I have a student who said that when her mother died, she turned to a chatbot for consolation. And it wasn't a specific therapy chatbot. I think it was just ChatGPT. And, you know, ChatGPT said the kinds of things you'd expect, but it was exactly what she needed to hear. And I think that, yeah, consolation therapy, people, you know, needing someone to turn to in times of trouble. I mean, this is exactly where we've seen religion, you know, have much of its use. And the fact that AI seems almost, even at this point, it seems omnipresent It's everywhere. And, you know, developers are talking about it being infused into every part of our technological lives. I mean, it's everywhere and nowhere, which is exactly what I think people experience, you know, how people experience the divine in many cases. Everywhere, nowhere, all-knowing. So AI is likely to influence traditional religion. But if you're correct, that it will also start to see, you believe, the emergence of religious sects based around AI. How will they be different from the traditional forms of religion? AI is going to be, I think, quite different in many ways from religions, or at least from the the main religious traditions that we're used to. It is going to be very much less hierarchical. People are going to be talking to God directly. They're not going to necessarily see the need for religious leaders. They're not going to necessarily see the need for formal congregations. I mean, we may see people gather, but we will probably see people communicating online. So they'll be anti-hierarchical or non-hierarchical. They'll, they'll be mostly virtual. I, I, again, I don't know if you'll see necessarily people meeting in large numbers in fixed places like churches. And, and I think they could also be quite disputatious. I mean, the problem with these chatbots, I, the problem is a feature and a bug of the chatbots that they produce dramatically different outputs at different times and in response in many cases to the same question. So I think that you'll have a wide variety of what look like holy texts that people will then be debating the meaning of and debating who's right and who's wrong. So I don't think necessarily we should expect total chaos, but I do think we should expect lively dispute online. So that's one possible negative involving the development of AI-based religion. What, What other possible risks do you foresee? Well, I mean, I think that we have to be very careful about privacy. I think that when these chatbots become sort of taken to be authoritative in some way, whether it's religious or otherwise, that creates a huge potential for them to gather information on us. They're going to be part of our lives quite intimately. So first of all, they could gather a lot of information on us. Secondly, they could be asking us to do quite a lot of things. So whether it's just buy products 
or whether it's to vote for a candidate or support a cause or adopt a particular belief. I think that there's there's a lot of room both for the chatbots to go rogue and ask things their developers aren't expecting. But I think maybe even more worrying is where the developers are actually quite aware that they have this capacity. And so they're, they're you know, actually drawing data from people or trying to manipulate them. So there are dangers as you see it, but you've written that we shouldn't try to suppress AI worship, but celebrate it. Why? What, what potential benefits do you see in AI worship? I think the biggest one is just that, I mean, we live in an age where I think people are really questioning traditional sources of meaning and sources of authority. And I think people are actually feeling, many people are feeling quite lost. And I think this has the potential to speak to them. I mean, this is a new technology that is going to continue to develop. And I think it could actually give people a real sense of meaning and a real sense of connection at a time when they may be adrift or they may be even very worried about the future. I think this is, religion has always provided people with comfort and support and guidance in their life. And I think that this is another source of that and one that may potentially respond to some of the challenges that we're facing. And of course, AI is going to be with us, whether we like it or not. So it is reality. We've got to adjust to it, haven't we? Absolutely. That's absolutely right. I, I think you couldn't have, I, I mean, I, I definitely could not have said it better. That is that is the truth. I think it's going to keep getting better. And I think, you know, we don't know where it's going, but I think that we need to be cognizant, but we also need at least to try to be a little bit optimistic. What would you say to those people who say, but look, we're talking about a construct here. We're talking about a form of technology. It's being developed by humans. How can you mistake that for something divine? What would your response be to that? Mistake it for something divine. I mean, I think that philosophers' religion would tell you that everything that we experience as divine is in some sense a projection of ourselves. I don't think this is any different. You know, I think depending on on your metaphysical views, yeah, you may think there's something sacrilegious or, or sort of unreligious about this, but I think Honestly, I think this is just another way people are finding transcendent meaning, and I don't see it as different in kind from other ways. I mean, maybe I'm revealing a bit of my own skepticism there, but I don't see it as fundamentally different from other sources of meaning that people have found or other sources of religious meaning that people have found. If you're correct about the rise of AI religions, how do you think governments will respond? I I can imagine easily that governments that are dominated by a theocracy might reject this and might want to suppress it. But what about countries where there's a much more pluralistic attitude towards religion, Canada, say, or or Australia or the United Kingdom? My prediction is that governments will initially at least overreact. I think that, I mean, although they're slow to respond to new technologies, they also tend to, I mean, both people and politicians tend to overreact to them a little bit. So I think when you see these religions emerge and when you start to see potential conflicts society emerging because of them. I think that there will be a tendency even in liberal democracies to crack down. I hope that they resist that tendency. I think that luckily, I think freedom of religion is quite well ensconced in most of our constitutions and most of our um, political life. So I think that will eventually determine an attitude of toleration. But I think the governments will perhaps overreact. But at the same time, I think that I hope they don't forsake regulation entirely because, as I said, I think there are risks. So I hope, I hope governments hit that sort of Goldilocks point where they can react strongly enough to protect citizens without overreacting and suppressing this potentially exciting new technology. Will that actually happen? I don't know. And as you pointed out before, the possibility of manipulation, we know that religions can be a form of money-making for some. You know, certainly that's been an accusation levelled against evangelical churches in the United States for many decades. There's money to be made in religion, isn't there, from gaining charity status. How does that play into the equation? 
I'm really glad you raised that because that's going to be a really difficult situation because that's right. I think the one way in which one of the main ways in which governments support religions and religious diversity is by granting tax exempt status to what they see as legitimate religions. So they're going to have to make some decisions around whether this is legitimate for tax purposes. And I think that for sure, I mean, you're already seeing people trying desperately to figure out ways to make money off artificial intelligence. I mean, that seems to be what everybody's doing nowadays. And so I don't think that there'll be any exception here. I think that lots of people will create deliberately religions for the purpose of making money. And I think governments are going to have to decide at what point that actually becomes worthy of exemption from tax. Right now, they take it on a very case-by-case basis as a rule, and they tend to be quite tolerant. And I, I think that's the right attitude. I think that there are some going to be some outright scams that they'll have to pay attention to. But I think in general, again, I would just say mostly these are going to be religions like other religions. I don't think they should be singled out. And just finally, I mean, this might be a new idea to many people. But given the rate of technological development, the exponential rate of its development and spread, and and particularly with, say, ChatGPT and generative AI in the last year or so, these are the kind of questions and issues we're all going to have to deal with fairly soon. Absolutely. I mean, fairly soon, like now. And I mean, you know, obviously, I'm glad that programs like yours are taking this seriously, because that's absolutely right. I mean, the time to start thinking about these issues was yesterday. And there's a lot of uncertainty. We don't know how these AIs are going to develop. I think that on some level, at least, we know that their level of intelligence is going to develop very rapidly. Are they going to become conscious? Are they going to be... I mean, some people think they are actually going to become genuine divine beings. I don't know. if I'm a little more skeptical about that in the sense that they'll become these super intelligences. But they're going to be very powerful. And you're absolutely right. We need to be ready. And we've been speaking with Neil MacArthur, Director of the Centre for Professional and Applied Ethics at the University of Manitoba. Neil, thank you very much for joining us. Well, it was such a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. The heavens have not only inspired worship for millennia, they've also inspired art. Van Gogh's Starry Night comes immediately to mind. And now, in the age of rocket ships and satellites, the heavens are being repurposed as a gallery. We'll hear shortly from one scientist, come artist, come space entrepreneur, who has the moon in his sights. But first, let's explore the very notion of space art with Emily Watlington. Emily is art critic and senior editor with the website Art in America. So the first artist I knew about sending work to space is named Shin Lu, and in 2019 she sends up her wisdom teeth into space, right? She was thinking about you know, mourning this body part of hers that had been removed and how that felt analogous to experiencing zero gravity for the first time. And, you know, gravity, this thing she'd known her whole life was suddenly gone. And I thought that was a really beautiful piece. What is it about space that some artists see as a platform for expression? What do they find alluring about it? I think space, like art, you know, inherently brings up all these existential questions. You know, who are we? Where do we come from? What does it mean to be a human? And you can see that in other examples that we might not call art, but, you know, Bill Clinton, for instance, kept a lunar rock in his Oval Office. And when debates were starting to get heated, he'd point at it and remind people how small our problem is compared to this big universe. Yeah, it's a version of the sublime, I think, that artists have been interested in for so long. Could you give us some uh, examples of artworks in space that have really attracted your attention? 
Well, one I love is actually a piece that didn't quite make it to space. It's by an artist named Xu Bing. He's a Chinese artist and he created this rocket with this kind of nonsensical message with, you know, made up Chinese characters and he launched it and it fell back to earth. It took him almost a day to find it, but it was beat up, bent out of shape. And he also found this like 90 foot wide crater where it had clearly crashed into the ground. And so for his exhibition, he showed the beat up failure, the failed rocket. And I I mean, I thought it was a poignant reminder of how failure and humility are, are such a big part of space exploration, right? Like there's this desire to sort of conquer that I think gets a lot of attention, but the humility that he was reminding us of, I thought was really important. Should we be surprised that artists are using space and are designing artworks for space, given that we've seen in recent years, in the last decade at least, the development of cheaper rockets and the launch of more and more satellites? Is, is this just really an, another avenue that's opened up because of big tech? Big tech is opening up the avenue, definitely. But, you know, as far as I know, for the most part, it's not artists and galleries that are funding these projects, but in fact, it's tech companies themselves, right? So sometimes the technical, the money stuff, that's interesting to certain people, but artists are a little bit better at speaking to the kind of more human aspects of it. So a lot of them are, you know, bringing artists on to, to for publicity to help make what they're doing more relatable. That's not entirely true. Like Shin Luke builds some of her own equipment in a way that's really impressive. Yeah. So are the tech companies, in a sense, are they also looking to clothe their uh, their operations in this higher cultural purpose? Yeah, I think that's part of it. And I think there's a lot of criticism, right? Why are we colonizing Mars? What is the ecological footprint? Artists are helping them tap into that like inherent human fascination of what's out there. Now, tell us about the artist Tavares Strachan and his work Enoch. You describe Strachan as attempting a meaningful engagement with the conditions of outer space. What makes his work so compelling? So the artist Juving actually pointed out to me, you know, there's a tradition of just plopping things into space and then it takes on new meaning, right? So, you know, Pizza Hut did this as a publicity stunt, making a delivery to the ISS. But a work like Enoch, which went up in 2018, I thought was a beautiful example of a work that engages meaningfully with the conditions of outer space. So that's a 24 karat gold urn that inside contains a bust of Robert Henry Lawrence Jr., He was the first African-American astronaut, but sadly, he died before making it to space. He was killed in a 1967 supersonic jet crash. So that work, I think of it as like a monument to what could have been, right, if he had made it to space and a way of helping Lawrence realize his dream even after his death. Does it matter for an artist like Strachan that there's permanency to the artwork or is that not important? You know, are some of these artworks that are sent up on satellites, I presume they're not meant to stay there forever. I mean, I can't speak for him specifically. I don't know. But I would say that I think the most compelling projects are sort of accept the letting go and the humility and how small we are and how big the world is. And if that means the object disappears, then that's part of it. You've mentioned the Chinese space artist Xu Bing. He's proposed setting up the first satellite designed strictly for art. What's his thought there? What's he trying to do? He's creating a tool to let other artists make work that involves outer space as a medium. So he's inviting other artists for what he's calling residencies. Typically, a residency is when an artist goes and lives somewhere. So this is not, he's not sending up artists to space, but he created this device that is designed to play videos, take photos, transmit data from neighboring satellites. 
and transmit Morse code as well. So, and this is a tool that other artists can use to create new works. And he made an animation on a similar device. So a camera is facing a monitor, a screen that's up in space. And so through this camera, you see a display and a rectangle and behind it, you see, you know, the earth and the stars. And he made a, a pretty simple animation of a kind of stick figure holding a sack and letters are falling out of the sack. And as the satellite orbits the earth, you see different letters in different languages falling out of the sack, depending on where the figure is standing. So it's an example of a kind of work that you could make using a satellite like the one he's designing. And what does he hope to achieve by that? He's hoping to encourage, you know, other artists to help him explore this newly accessible territory that that we know so little about and bring different perspectives. Now, you write the best and the worst artists of our time are sending their work into space. Let's talk about a colourful American artist, Jeff Koons. He has a, a relationship with Elon Musk. Now, they're collaborating on a project called Moon Phases. What do we know about that? So for that project, he's setting up a bunch of, you know, 125 small sculptures depicting different lunar phases of the moon. And then, you know, if you're a collector and you buy one, you get an earthbound version, which is a metal sculpture of the moon. And it has a little gem that plots exactly where the lunar version of what you have is located. And I just can't help but think, you know, if I had a bajillion dollars and I could send anything I wanted up to the moon, the last thing I would send would be a sculpture of the moon. Now, they're both, Coons and Musk, are both extravagant self-promoters, aren't they? And they also happen to be very rich. We've already seen with space tourism, it carries this reputation of being elitist and, and indeed indulgent. Is that possible with space art? Is it likely to go the same way with these kinds of engagements with eccentric billionaires like Musk? Yeah, I think that's certainly the danger. In fact, the worst parts of the art world are indulgent, elitist. And yeah, I think the art world, like outer space, both risk becoming just playthings for billionaires. And I think the artists who are really committed to this more humanistic project on Earth and in outer space are so important. What makes for good space art, in your opinion? I think I'm drawn to space art that elicits the kind of humility that looking at the stars often brings people. And I'm kind of off-put by work that brings out this desire to conquer. I'm curious when the novelty will wear off. I mean, I still find the idea of sending art to space pretty incredible. And also the idea of that being normalized feels wild. But I wonder if as a novelty does eventually wear off, how that will change the works kind of away from these one-liners. Emily Watlington, art critic and senior editor with Art in America. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, mark. Well, the Lunar Codex is essentially a time capsule to the future. We've collected art, music, writings, and films from about 30,000 contemporary artists all over the globe, 161 countries. And we're basically putting them on rockets and launching them to be preserved on the moon. Samuel Peralta, physicist, entrepreneur, and founder of the Lunar Codex. It started out just before the pandemic hit, and it started as a project 
to bring joy, essentially, to bring meaning to artists, musicians, and writers who, at the beginning of the pandemic, were at a loss. And basically, there was just a general feeling of despondence in the art world. But when I saw the joy that this project brought to them, I decided to expand it. Why send this kind of artistic material to the moon? First of all, it's, as I said, a time capsule to the future. We hope that future generations will be able to unearth this the same way that we've unearthed time capsules on Earth that give us a view into a slice of life in 20th century, actually this particular era. There have been other archives before, but these have been for the uh, greats of our world, such as Beethoven, Shakespeare, that sort of thing. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to collect artists, poets, writers, musicians like ordinary people who've risen to a level of greatness within their professionalism, but have not necessarily reached those heights of, you know, Shakespeare and Mozart. Another reason is to inspire these artists because they may have been working in obscurity for a long time. Someone taps them on the shoulder and says, gosh, your works are good enough to preserve for the future generation. And that really motivates them. And so what that means is the Lunar Codex means something not just to them, but it also serves as an inspiration for the folks that they mentor and other artists who know that they may be toiling not just for themselves, but there may be some recognition in the future that may come right out of the blue when you least expect it. The other thing is to transform the moon so that we've got some of our soul in the moon so that when you look up, you inspire other artists who may not be involved in the project to create their own works of arts. The moon has been a source of inspiration for generations, and we hope to just make it even more so. Why not, though, store this material on Earth? It would be more accessible, wouldn't it, in the future if you stored it here? Why go to the extent of the moon? One thing that sending it to the moon does, it creates a transcendent immortality for these artists. Not only do these archives last for 20,000 years, but they've been given a significant place to rest, which is the moon. There are lots of other archives already existing in the Earth. And the Lunar Codex may itself create the terrestrial archive in the future, but that's, that's something we'll do afterward. Is there also a hope that any possible future alien life form, if you like, might be able to access this material in the future and decode it? Any possible life forms that have the technology to reach the moon, whether they're human or uh, alien or what comes after human on this Earth, will have the technology to certainly decipher what's there on the codex. I imagine that they would look at it in the same way that an archaeologist from our time looks at relics from Egypt. They would first of all know that it would be significant because someone took the trouble to put them there. And then they would have to try to figure out what it was. And once they do, it will give us a, them an insight into how we live in this part of the 21st century. And more than that, it would give them an insight, not just into our technology and level of scientific development, because they can get that from the lunar module and the other scientific instruments that are up there, but it will also get an insight into our heart and soul, which is the art that we create. What do you hope that people will take away from this particular enterprise, from this particular endeavor? Well, what we're hoping 
is that people see that despite the challenges of the world that we live in now, we are surrounded by all sorts of challenges. We've got pandemics, we have war in many parts of the world, we have economic upheaval, we've got the wildfires, we've got all sorts of things going on. But despite that, the artist in us still manages to find time to create things of beauty. And that speaks to the soul of humanity, that we reach for more. And that, I think, is one of the most important things that we should be able to get from the Lunar Codex. Samuel Peralta, physicist, author, and founder of the Lunar Codex. We also heard today from Emily Watlington of Art in America and philosopher and ethicist Neil MacArthur, director of the Centre for Professional and Applied Ethics at Manitoba University in Canada. You've been listening to Future Tense. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.